Welcome, everyone, to Historia, a podcast dedicated to the study of history and culture. I am your host, David Williams. Let's get started. Today, I have Richard Brookheiser with me, historian and journalist, senior editor at National Review. Richard is the author of 14 books, including America's First Dynasty, about the Adams family, Gentleman Revolutionary, about the wonderfully colorful founding father, Governor Morris, Founder's Son, about Abraham Lincoln, the book we'll be discussing today, John Marshall, the man who made the Supreme Court, and his newest book, Give Me Liberty, about American exceptionalism. So, Richard, thanks for coming on Historia. John Marshall, fascinating character, very important person, yet someone you don't learn about as much in in history, it seems like. My American history studies, we didn't really spend time talking about him, and yet he is an incredibly important person in the formation of the country as we know it today in many ways. Well, well, yeah, we just had a, a, a very fraught confirmation of a Supreme Court justice. And yes, we did. Every confirmation these days is fraught because of the importance of the Supreme Court. But it, the, the Supreme Court was not always important. Uh, it's always been in the Constitution. The federal judiciary is provided for by the Constitution. But in the first uh, 11 years of its existence, there were three chief justices. They, uh, two of them left the job voluntarily. Uh, one of them, John Jay, the first one to hold it, uh, called it intolerable. He said that the Supreme Court lacked energy, weight, and dignity, and he preferred instead to run for governor of New York. Now, can you imagine just John Roberts, someone saying to John Roberts, hey, look, we can make you governor of Indiana, and right, then just saying, oh, cool, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step down and do that instead. Well, that's what, that's what John Jay did. The first reason why this begins to change is the tenure of the fourth chief justice, that's John Marshall. Uh, He's there for 34 years, still the record for a chief justice, and he also sets a number of important precedents, and he adds energy, weight, and dignity to the job, the very things that John Jay said it lacked. So that's why I think he deserves a look, why he deserves a book. Another reason is, as you say, he's relatively underdone. There there have been some very good biographies of him, but not as many as you would expect uh, about a person of his importance. And I think that's because his career is in the law and that that intimidates both uh, authors and publishers. There's a, there's a feeling that, well, this is specialized. Uh, it's a minority taste. How do we make this dramatic? It's a series of cases. And so people have tended to uh, steer around him. And that was that was a problem that I had to face as an author, but I, I hope I overcame it. Well, I certainly think you did. It was a fascinating book, and um, I really, really enjoyed it. For Marshall, it seems like he was so different than the others in some ways. He was he was a second generation and some well, not necessarily second generation, I guess. He I mean, was Saunders. Yeah, right. he's the younger. He's in the younger cohort. I mean, he's right. the same age as, or approximately the same age as Alexander Hamilton, James Madison. These are people who were born in the 1750s. 
Uh, by then, uh, you know, George Washington is already in his 20s. Sam Adams is in his 30s. This, this is the, the second wave of founding figures. And, and these men are all young men during the Revolutionary War. They really come into their own after the war is won and particularly after the, the Constitution is written and ratified and up and running. Uh, Marshall, for instance, he, uh, he volunteers when he's 19. Uh, he's involved in uh, a number of battles during the revolution. He rises to the rank of captain. Uh, the revolution is where his admiration for George Washington is just set. And in a way, I think that's the most important figure in his life. Uh, he strove to emulate Washington. He admired Washington. Uh, his policies, uh, you know, to the extent that justice has policies, uh, are, are Washington's policies with, you know, one important exception. So, so that was the formative uh, political experience of his life. But it happens to him when he's a young man. And then it's as he comes into his own, uh, first as a lawyer in Richmond, then as a politician involved in the Federalist Party, one of the two parties in the first two-party system, and then finally as Chief Justice when President John Adams puts him in that role. Then he comes into his own, and he is the, he's really the last of the founders left standing. Uh, James Madison and Aaron Byrd die after he does, but they've been out of office for decades. Right. Uh, John Marshall is holding his job until 1835, the year he dies. So he is the last of the founding generation to be still active in political and national life. I think it's amazing because uh, I think one person was referred to in some ways, John Quincy Adams as the very last of the founders. Um, since in some ways he actually began his uh, government career when he was what, 10 or 11 years old as a secretary. <laughs> and he, he made it to the Polk administration, but still, I mean, like you said, I mean, that's not, if you think about Adams as a, as a boy, when Marshall is actually fighting the war. Right. Um, and that's right. And the two of them, in some ways, I mean, that's a that's an amazing run when you think about how long those men served. I mean, that's for Marshall. That would be almost sixty years. Right, right. He's he dies in uh, his seventy uh, ninth year or his eightieth year. He's not yet eighty years old. Uh, he dies in July. His birthday's in September. But uh, it is a good long run, and that's that's one of the reasons he had such an impact on the court that he's there for thirty four years. But uh, there are other important ones. Uh, another reason is that he was just a wonderful guy. People like being in his company. He liked being in their company. He was hospitable. He had a sense of humor. He enjoyed his drink. He enjoyed <laughs> drinking with other people. There is a story. Now, Marshall collects anecdotes, okay? So I'm not going to swear on a Bible that these are all absolutely true. But the fact that they were told and circulated is itself interesting. And so this one wonderful Marshall uh, anecdote uh, explains that the Supreme Court, when he comes on it already, even after only 11 years, has a number of traditions. And one of them is that after a day of hearing cases, when the justices go back to the boarding house where they're all you know, living because they're coming to the national capital from elsewhere just for a month to do their job. Uh, they can only have wine at their meal if it's raining. And I assume a tradition like that would be 
so they could cheer themselves up. So Marshall would always ask one of his colleagues, often a Joseph Story, younger justice who admired him, Brother Story, will you look out the window and tell us what the weather is? And Story would say, well, the sun is going down, you know, in a beautiful clear sky. And Marshall would say, our jurisdiction is so vast that by the law of chances, it must be raining somewhere. <laughs> so wine was always served to the Marshall court. Uh, the wine merchants of Washington, D.C. called their best stuff the Supreme Court when Marshall was on. <laughs> he was their best customer. Okay, so he was, you know, he's someone uh, that, that you like being with. He establishes a fellow feeling with his fellow justices. He also defers. Uh, if there are justices who are expert in areas of law that he is not, he will let them take the lead on decisions. Uh, one of his colleagues for many years is uh, Justice Thomas Todd from Kentucky. He knows a lot about land law because there are a lot of cases arising there, the the um, legal situation with property in Kentucky was very confused, generated a lot of litigation. So Todd would be the one to take the lead there. Admiralty law, Joseph Story, uh, he's from Marblehead, Massachusetts Port, a um, lot of merchants. He knows that uh, area of it. And when you give deference, you get deference back. Right. And it's not just the nice thing or the polite thing, it's the politic thing. But then the, the final aspect of Marshall's influence is he's always the smartest guy in the room. And a lot of his colleagues were very smart. There were some sharp jurists on that early court. Story himself, uh, an older man, Justice Samuel Chase, a lot of certain personality problems, but a very sharp <laughs> legal mind. And yet they all recognized that when Marshall bore down he was just their superior. Uh, one lawyer who appeared before the court a lot, uh, William Wirt, he ends up being attorney general. He said that uh, Marshall's mind was like the ocean. Everyone else's minds were mere ponds mm. in comparison. Wow. So that's, that's the feeling people had about Marshall. So you put all that together, his mind, his deference, uh, his wonderful temperament, and the fact that he's there for 34 years. And he really, for most of that period, he's able to run his court, even though as time passes, it's composed of people appointed by his political opponents. You know, Marshall is put on the court by John Adams. This is in the lame duck of the Adams administration. Adams's party has just gotten blown out in the election of 1800. They've lost everything. They've lost the White House. They've lost the Senate. They've lost the House of Representatives. So, and this is the midnight judges, right, that we all right. learned about in school. Uh, Adams loads the judiciary up with Federalists. Now, this was a political move. There was also a reason for it. There was a feeling that we need more circuit courts so that people have easier access to the federal judiciary. So there was there was also, you know, a, a justification for doing it. But uh, so Marshall is one of these one of these and and he's he's the last of them. And then as uh, Jefferson is president for 8 years followed by Madison, followed by Monroe, it's 24 years of guys in the other party and as justices uh, die and retire, they're all being replaced by men picked by Republican presidents. This is the first Republican party, not the GOP right. party that becomes the Democratic party. And this is, this is the party of Marshall's rivals and enemies. And yet, 
all these men come on the court and they almost all always end up voting with Marshall. And that's because of the things that, that I was explaining. Well, that's one of the things that I found really interesting in your book was the emphasis you placed on how Marshall sought to create consensus mm-hmm. rather than, I mean, I think we're so used to in our own day and age seeing a lot of five, four decisions. Now, sometimes I think it's because the things that are five, four are the more controversial issues of the day. I, you know, when you, when you kind of drill down and look at some of the more mundane cases they hear, you get a lot of seven twos and stuff like that. But um, we just almost are used to in our own society if the Supreme Court being uh, divided in its, inside itself. And Marshall seemed to go beyond, you know, really work at bringing others together to create a consensus so that when the Supreme Court issued a ruling, it wasn't this one side says this and one side says this is kind of a, a, this idea of, no, this is how the judicial branch thinks about these issues. Right. He really pioneered opinions of the court. Uh, Before he comes on the court, uh, most of the judgments handed down, it's what's called seriatim opinions. A case would be argued, and then each justice would just write his own opinion, present it, and then you'd have to figure out, you know, you'd have to read them all and add them all up and, you know, see who won or lost. But, but with Marshall, you start having opinions of the court, often written by him, you know, not always, but often written by him. And clearly there was social pressure within the court not to dissent unless, unless you were really passionate about it. One of, um, one of the Jeffersonian appointees, William Johnson, Uh, who agreed with Marshall a lot of the time. But uh, he writes a letter in the early 1820s to Jefferson, in a way kind of explaining himself, you know, how how come, you know, you you stuck me on the court to to resist Marshall, and yet here I am agreeing with him, you know, over and over again. And and Johnson says, well, you know, when I first got in the court, I, I thought of expressing my own opinion, but then I just got lectures from my fellow justices, how you shouldn't do this. This diminishes the prestige of all of us. You know, dissents are bad. Uh, so I bent to the current, said Johnson. So uh, now, you know, he's telling this to Jefferson, the man who appointed him, so he may be um, being a little hyperbolic to try and, uh, you know, explain himself. But I think that's evidence that there was social pressure within the Marshall Court to to not dissent, to not even write concurring opinions, really, uh, unless it was really necessary. And there are some famous Marshall cases like Dartmouth v. Woodward, where there are dissents and concurrences. But but a lot of a lot of the, the the ones that are very famous and that were very controversial in their own day are unanimous opinions. And again, that's that's an effective of all those factors I was just uh, uh, talking about in Marshall's leadership. I think I should mention another one, which is the newness of this all. I mean, Marshall is not the first chief justice, but, you know, the the federal judiciary is still a pretty new thing uh, at the time that he gets on it. So there is an opportunity to lay down precedents rather than have to you know, wade right. your way through them and, and either go along or try and, you know, steer them in a, in a different direction. So he's got a cleaner, he has a much cleaner slate than any of his successors will have. 
Well, it seems that you know the the American judiciary is a very unique in um, in its creation. I mean, it's an independent branch of the government. Not you know, as the British judiciary was was dependent upon the the king, agents of the crown. Whereas the the American judiciary is completely separate as a branch, if you will, from both the president and the both the executive and the legislature, and also has, I mean, under Marshall in many ways, judicial review sort of comes into existence in some well, way, it, it seems like. It comes into its own. He doesn't invent it. I mean, the idea is out there. Uh, Hamilton addresses it in the Federalist Papers before the Constitution is ratified. It's it's discussed in, in the state ratifying conventions. Uh, also, um, state judges are using this at the state level to strike down state laws that they find violate the state Constitution. So, this, this was an existing idea. It's just that as as Chief Justice Marshall is 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 able or does this for the first time. And that's of course Marbury versus Madison, right. which we learned about in school. And he he strikes down a provision of the Judiciary Act of 1789 because he thinks it gives the Supreme Court a power uh, which it shouldn't have under the Constitution. Uh, he's also um, on carefully selected occasions, uh, willing to read lectures to the executive branch. You know, Marbury being one of them. Right. It's a long, long opinion. And the, the wind-up is like, uh, okay, Thomas Jefferson, you came in and said all us Federalists were just the, the worst awful people. Now we're going to get a government as good as the American people, and we're going to do everything right. But look, at one of the first things you have done, you denied poor William Marbury uh, a commission that he has a right to. Now, in the end, Marshall decides that the, the, the form of the appeal that Marbury is taking is not something that Marshall can grant. And again, this is because the law under which Marbury is appealing is unconstitutional. But before he gets there, there's this long, long, it's like he's shaking his finger at Thomas Jefferson, who is his cousin, by the way, his right. second once removed, and, and who Marshall um, disdains, and Jefferson hates Marshall in return. Uh, Marshall's a pretty forgiving guy. He doesn't hate a lot of people, but Jefferson was probably the one he did. So there's that. Uh, then also, uh, Jefferson tries to get his former, in his second term, he tries to get his former vice president, Aaron Burr, hanged for treason. Uh, he says he's uh, engaged in treason. Uh, he is plotting to break up the United States and to illegally invade Mexico. And Burr is tried. Uh, it's in a circuit court trial, but the Supreme Court justice who's riding that circuit happens to be John Marshall, the chief justice. This is something Supreme Court justices did up until the 1860s. They would also ride circuit. So, and, and in Marshall's ruling on the Burr trial, um, he, uh, it's basically a long lecture to Thomas Jefferson saying, you are trying to import English notions of treason into, Amer into the American Constitution, but we don't accept these because we knew how loosey-goosey they could be and how they could be used politically. Right. Get rid of one's enemies. But the Constitution very strictly says, well, it says what it says. It has to be either aid and comfort to enemies 
which we don't have any enemies at this moment because we're not at war with anybody, or it has to be an act of war witnessed uh, by t- two persons, which you have not proven. So he's, uh, he's, uh, he's taking a, a very out there contrarian position towards the executive. Now, I have to say he doesn't like run around looking for these opportunities. Right. He, they come to him. He's also politic. I think Marshall, you know, he's, he's always aware of the politics that are surrounding uh, the cases that come to him. And, and you know, sometimes right. it's not at all, but sometimes it is. And he's, he's aware of that. Uh, and he knows, for instance, in the Burr treason trial, that this is a very big deal. This is something Thomas Jefferson wants really badly. Uh, and he's going out on a limb by doing this, but he does it. Uh, he writes a letter afterwards to a, a, a circuit or district court judge. He says this may have been the worst case ever to come before a judge in, in a nation that affects to be governed by laws. Yeah, that's so he, he, uh, he felt under the gun on that one. But Marshall just seemed to have that personal integrity, that personal honor that just said, no, we're not going, we don't put these kind of petty things out there. As you said, we're a nation of laws. Mm-hmm. And yes, we're a nation of laws. Uh, let, me just, um, let me just end by, by focusing on, on one area of law that was, that was very important to Marshall, and that was contracts. And this comes up uh, again and again in some of his most important decisions. Uh, there's, there's one uh, early on, 1810, uh, called Fletcher versus Peck. Uh, there's a later one, 1819. Dartmouth v. Woodward. And these are both cases involving contracts. Uh, Fletcher uh, involves a land deal that the state of Georgia had done. Uh, Georgia originally goes all the way to the Mississippi River. Uh, It owns what later becomes Mississippi and Alabama. And in the 1790s, they sold all that land to to a group of, of land companies uh, the problem was that every member but one of the Georgia legislature had been bribed. And so in the next election, all these guys were thrown out. New legislature comes in. They, they amend the Constitution to declare that sale illegal. And they, they, they make laws specifying that it can never be brought up in a Georgia court. No, no suit related to this can be brought up in a Georgia court. Well, a suit is arranged between two purchasers from other states. One, one, one of them uh, sues the other saying, oh, you didn't really own this land. I want my money back. And so because they're citizens of different states, it goes to the federal judiciary and up to the Supreme Court. And their martial rules, uh, sorry, a contract is a contract. It would be indecent in the extreme for the court to try and pass judgment on the honesty or lack of it. Of the, of the politics <laughs> of the state, but this contract was, this the sale was made, and then people went on and, you know, resold the, the, the lands they had purchased, and you just cannot go back on the deal you made. It's like, you know, purchaser beware, buyer beware. I mean, right. if you put your, your, your signature to this, that contract holds. Uh, Dartmouth v. Woodward, involved the college charter of Dartmouth College. The state of New Hampshire tried to take it over. 
because they said it was a political institution, it was a religious institution, it's being run by Federalists and Calvinists. And, you know, we want to open education to people of all parties uh, and all religions. Well, who could object to that? I mean, no one could object to that. But the problem was they took over Dartmouth College. Right. And, well, we're going to have new trustees that we will pick and we're going to change the whole structure. And, you know, Dartmouth College's position was, well, no. I mean, we have a charter to, to run the college the way we want it run. And so we want our, our college back. And this goes up to the Supreme Court and Marshall rules that the charter is a contract. And he admits that when the contracts clause was written in the Constitution, they probably weren't thinking of, of college charters. But he says, if, it, if, if a case follows the words of the rule, then the rule must apply to it. So he's applying the contracts clause to Dartmouth's charter, and he tells the state of New Hampshire, you can't do this, you're done wrong, you, you have to let Dartmouth be run uh, the way that it was being run before you came in and took it over. Okay, and these are these are two important cases, and they they are designed to uh, to tell America that the contracts clause is something that has to be obeyed. States do not have the power of impairing the obligations of contract, and this has vast economic consequences. It means that that contracts will stand, that people can enter into them confidently that they won't have to be looking over their shoulders as the next session of the legislature going to come along and undo all this. So he's establishing a degree of confidence in economic transactions, uh, which will have uh, great effects uh, right. on American history. Because you so because I, would, I, would I would just end with that as um, perhaps one of the most consequential things Marshall did. And this, even though he's not an economist, He's not particularly a businessman. I mean, he's a land speculator, so he's a businessman in that sense. But he does, you know, he doesn't invent anything. Uh, he, you know, he doesn't put together any corporations. But nevertheless, this Virginia gentleman's rulings had huge economic consequences for the modern world. That's really amazing. I mean, you know, just how very important things that seem like almost mundane details in their own time can have these rippling effects that go on to today. Mm -hmm. And I guess it just took a man of, uh, like I said earlier, man of great character to, to stand on those. And uh, something that I, as I've been talking with others, the importance in a, in a nation of laws be uh, undergirded by, by men of good moral character. Because the laws themselves don't always restrain people if their character is weak. And how, how men have, have come up at certain times, you know, just to, to stand in that gap and say, no, you can't do this. You know, this is what the law says, not just because what the law says, but also because it's right. Well, that's right. You can't do this even, if, even though you're popular. Right. Which, exactly. Which, you know, Marshall is, is often doing this in the face of, an, of pressure from an extremely popular and successful political party. I mean, so popular and successful, it still exists. It's the, yes. oldest, party, <laughs> the oldest party in the Western world, except for the Tories uh, in England. And, uh, and they were so successful that Marshall's party just died and disappeared. Right. <laughs> I mean, that you know, the Federalists, uh, the Federalists vanish, essentially, after the War of 1812. But despite that, 
um, even though you're the most, even though you're the bee's knees, uh, you, you cannot violate the law. We are a nation of laws. So maybe that's the best possible note to end this on. Well, Richard, thank you so much for taking your time and talk to us about John Marshall. He's a truly fascinating person. Just want to tell everybody, go out there, uh, get the book. It's a really wonderful book. Uh, I'll have links to it in the show notes. Uh, we also have a documentary, which is available on Amazon. Yes. Okay. It's, John Mar- it's the same name as the book, John Marshall, The Man Who Made the Supreme Court. Uh, you, If you Google that in and add documentary on Amazon, up it will come. Uh, it's uh, over two hours. It's a long show, but we interviewed Chief Justice Roberts, uh, Justice Alito, lots of historians and, and, and constitutional law professors, and we go to the sites of of many of Marshall's most important cases. So you can also uh, check that out. Well, wonderful. Well, I'll, I'll put the links to, uh, to that in the show notes as well. Uh, so thank you so much. Thanks so much to Richard for coming on the show today and talking to us about John Marshall. Richard has written, as we said at the beginning, a large number of books. He's a wonderful writer. Go out there and buy them all. I will have links to his books and also to the documentary that he mentioned that is up on Amazon in the show notes. Please remember to subscribe if you enjoy this show. Leave us a review. Leave us a five-star rating. Your ratings and reviews help us to reach more people. And if I can reach more people, that means I also get to have more guests. So thanks so much for your support and taking time out to be with us. Take care, everybody.